Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. And we we got a bunch of emails. A flurry? A plethora? Yeah. In response to the idea of, or the question about leg cramps. Well, they're serious. Yeah. I and get that, and, I, I get them. Wake yeah. up in the night. Well, no. One listener wanted to know about that, you know, he's getting leg cramps and he wanted to know why they, they happen. Yeah. Derek, I believe was his name. And if I remember, if memory serves... We asked our listeners about leg cramps, and we got a bunch of emails about leg cramps. And I'm just going to read a couple here. Yeah, quick caveat. We haven't um, clinically solved this. We haven't, the idea was at some point we were going to talk to a person of medicine about why this happens. We have not done that. But we got the emails, so why not read a couple of them yeah. out? Yeah, I have had these since I was a child. Either dehydration magnesium deficiency, or pickle juice. Mm. I love pickles, and I think my body was trying to tell me, electrolytes, girl, once in a while I still get, I still get them, yikes, and then a bunch of smileys hmm. or emojis. The only reason I, 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 again, I'm purely speculating here, Yeah. but in Germany they have these, uh, these what they call Brause tabletten it's like you, you plop it in water and it makes it fizzy yeah. and it can give you vitamin C. They're supplements, vitamin yeah. C, calcium, and magnesium. Magnesium. And I, and I take those. I take those magnesium. They it tastes good. Yeah. It makes water delicious. And um, still, I had the issues for a while at that same time. So for me personally, that didn't seem to be the culprit. The that cramps didn't go away with the magnesium. Been, yeah. Couldn't, uh, maybe I just needed more pickle juice. I don't, I don't know. Well, wife and I both get leg cramps at night. We started taking magnesium citrate, as recommended by many other people. Now, we rarely get the hmm. cramps. Again, contradictory to my experience. It yeah. must be magnesium citrate. <laughs> no, we, this person, no, this person sent a picture. A gigantic oh, yeah. bottle of magnesium citrate. High absorption, helps support bones, muscles, and heart health, mm -hmm. is what this person... Is, uh, is on the bottle of the That's well, what picture. the bottle claims. Yeah. And again, we should be very clear here... The worst thing we could do is accidentally encourage our listeners to go buy products that are not only um, not beneficial to them, but in some cases, I don't know. Does, does taking magnesium negatively interact with other medicines that you're taking? I don't know that. And uh, don't do anything based on what we're saying right now. Right. <laughs> that's, that's maybe the most important thing. Thank you, Connor. Yeah. Uh, I have not an email. We had a lot of emails. I have a YouTube comment. They were pouring in. Still pouring in. Not with regard to leg cramps, but with regards to... Children. The, uh, children and God question. Yeah, the children and God and morality question. This, this research we talked to Madeline Reinicki about and how kids as, uh, by age four are very willing to reject God telling them what to do in a moral way. And concretely, the example was stepping on another kid's foot. If the kid thinks that's okay to do and they hear that God says, no, you shouldn't do it. Kid's like, no, no, I think it's okay. If the kid thinks it's wrong to do and God says, you should, the kid sticks to his or her, her or their principles. Mm -hmm. They don't care what God has to say. So the comment, uh, really well written. I unfortunately have to summarize it because it was long. Um, it says that we've kind of walked into a trap in a way, argumentatively with this research and by talking about it. It says, you know, the thing that children were asked about doing, hitting another child without provocation, would be considered a sin, according to the Bible, for multiple reasons. So a religious person could say that the children declining the order that was sinful to begin with is in fact evidence that objective moral values do exist and are aligned with the Bible even from a very young age. 
and that it all it's this moral argument that ultimately ties back to the idea that our morals are they align with religious morality and hence they come from, they're, they're divine yeah they're divine so we got into that with madeline right we asked her if morality comes from god does this is does that destroy this or does this destroy that the study if you're a religious person who says that all of your morality comes from clearly not that's what this comment is about that a religious somebody making a religious argument would say well uh it shows that our morality is in fact divinely inspired because the two kind of line up i what i replied to the comment you're welcome to read it in full again the the youtube channel is dw podcast on youtube and science and script is there it's it's wrong on its face this argument because first of all children aren't agreeing with god here and in fact, sometimes our morality really deviates from what you would find, for example, in the Holy Bible. First of all, which, which God, which, which religious text are we talking about? Mm-hmm. But even there, they're not lining up with God. They're choosing their own path. Right. And so the question was whether God can change those kids' morality. Correct. And the answer can't. was no. Can't. So it's wrong on its face. We can start there. Secondly, I would say, is it any surprise that a, a religious text that was transcribed by human beings contains human morals. That's no, or, or was written by human beings, contains mm. human morals. The final step of the argument would be, well, you know, it wasn't really written by human beings. It was divinely inspired, and the human hand was just the, I don't know, the medium through which God's word. Okay. That, Ordained by God, yeah. Sure. That can neither be proven nor disproven. But in this YouTube comment, and for anyone out there, uh, anyone, someone says this is quote unquote evidence of the divine. That's a really important word to me, evidence, <laughs> and to the to the people behind the show. Evidence means something. So if anyone uses evidence, that word in this context, I would ask them which evidence provide it. Which peer reviewed journal yeah, was it yeah. published in, and where can I see how they conducted that study? Yeah. Uh, that's the last I have to say on what was a really interesting interview and just and still a fascinating topic that I could talk about forever, but we're going to move on to a different study. Here's a study about about proof, because we're going to be dealing with a concept or something that there's a huge body of literature on this. It has to do with going out into nature and that effect on us. There's a lot of proof out there, scientific work that's been done about how good nature is for us. But this study, they went a little bit further than the proof that already exists, namely self-reporting. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Me- meaning people who got in the nature, into nature, end up filling out a survey afterwards, and they're like, "I feel much better." Yay! Right. Right. It makes me feel better because that's what I write about myself, or that's what I report about myself. Or maybe you've been primed to believe it's going to make you feel better, and, it, and so you check the box. At the University of Utah, they went in. They 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 went further. They had people take cognitive tests following that foray into nature, or a walk into nature in this case. They had people take a 40-minute walk into nature. That was one group. And they had people walk around a parking lot. That was the second group. And what they did before that was they drained them cognitively. They made them count back from a 1,000 by sevens. Oh, oh by, by sevens. sevens. <sighs> 993, right. 986, right. 979. That's, that's painful. Drained, absolutely drained before you take this walk. Then you take the walk either in nature or on a parking lot. 
And after that, you have to take an awareness test. Up to this point, imagine you're in the group. You've been drained, counting backwards by sevens from a thousand. You get forced to walk around a parking for park- 40 minutes. Parking lot. What is this? Why did I? Why did I sign up? And then they have to take an awareness test. That's looking into the to being alert, your sense of orientation, and your sense of what's called executive control. Mm-hmm. Right. So a test looking into those three things. Between the people who walked around in nature and the people who walked around the parking lot, the people who walked around in nature did way better on executive control. That is the most, that's the portion of our brain that is most evolved. It has to do with the highest order of cognitive tests, so decision making. The people who walked around in nature were way better. In addition to that, they had their brains scanned using EEG. So 32 electrodes making a brain map. Of, of their or making a map of their brain and in that part of the brain that is that is in charge of this executive control namely the prefrontal cortex a more much more, much more activity in the people who went walking in nature so in the arboretum outside Utah University compared to the parking lot so not it, all, it, it was the nature it's the, it was the nature they compared these two groups of people if you went walking in nature, you were way better when it comes to hard tasks than if you had just walked around in a parking lot. So if, if you're in nature, you are your, your brain is better cognitively. You're in a better state if you go walking in nature, in this arboretum outside Utah University compared to asphalt. <laughs> so It's, it's more the, than just the... feeling better. Walking around in nature makes you feel better. It's that your brain is better. Yeah. So I, I, was, I mean, I was going to joke and say that the lesson for people is if you're, you know, if you have the option of going in a beautiful trail or circling the parking lot for 45 minutes, take the trail. But obviously it's yet another piece of the puzzle we've talked about a lot. Go and take a walk through something that's green. Nature is good for us. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, just a, a sort of something to say on uh, a a, a scientific study that made headlines around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, This is about Alzheimer's. And the first and most important thing I can say about it is that you are not, you the listener, you're not going to catch Alzheimer's. It's not contagious. It's not a disease. Somebody doesn't sneeze it out or breathe it out. No, it takes a long time for that to happen in our brain. And it's a neurodegenerative uh, course of events over years. Correct. That is how we understand it. Either due, due to lifestyle choices, you can accelerate the likelihood that that's going to happen. There's a bunch of factors that lead to it. Obesity, yeah, diabetes, not, not all health. Yeah. Genetics can play into, play into it. Yeah. Now, in a very small study, researchers from the UK have shown, or it, 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 the study suggests, it depends who you ask, that there are very, very, very specific circumstances where it can be transmitted from one person to another. That was the headline that went around the world. We couldn't talk about it last week, even though we knew about it, mm. because it was embargoed. That's something that happens in the, in the science world. You, you find out that a study is about to be published, and we, we saw it was coming. We couldn't talk about it. What's worth saying today is that this, the, the, what they did is they looked at eight kids, and the, these eight kids back between, basically, I think it was 1959, 1985, if you needed growth hormones... If you were smaller than you should, you weren't developing the way you should have been. The way they did that in some cases in the past, and they do not do this anymore, is they went into the pituitary gland of people who had died mm-hmm. in their in their brains, and they I guess they sucked it out with the syringe. They got that stuff out, and they used that as a growth hormone treatment for underdeveloped 
people. They took the stuff of the pituitary and gave it to these kids. Yes. Okay. This no longer happens. None of you listening right now have to worry about this as a possibility. They stopped doing it at 85. Anytime they, if, if you get growth hormones now, it's done. they're made in the lab. And now they've had a look at what happened to these kids down the road, namely now. Yeah. And of them, five of eight had early onset dementia, ages 38 to 55. Of the other three, one had mild cognitive issues, another one had subjective cognitive, and one was asymptomatic subjective cognitive. I believe in this case is referencing um, someone who had issues anyway, Mm -hmm. or degenerative issues. Two major German institutions experts have weighed in on this. This is from the Science Media Center in Germany, but uh, he's actually part of the Robert Koch Institute, the, the CDC of Germany. Mm-hmm. And he's been looking at um, prions for years. This is when proteins start folding in on themselves and they cause other proteins to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And he's not really so convinced. And I think that's kind of interesting as well. He's like, look, um, it's based on five patients out of eight that we're talking about, who developed dementia three to four decades after treatment with growth hormones. Two of the five people in question had mental disabilities since childhood, which are associated with an increased likelihood of early onset dementia. Um, and on and on, he basically goes on to say, look, further studies are desirable and necessary to check and if necessary, support the far-reaching conclusions of the author team. In my opinion, it seems premature to describe the patient's clinical syndrome as iatrogenic Alzheimer's. That means it was transferred surgically, or mm. yeah, in this case, surgically, pretty much. And he's, so he's not convinced. And I, I wanted to make that clear because it's scary to imagine, and I'll repeat what I said at the beginning differently, uh, you're, not gonna, you're not going to walk into a retired li- or an assisted living facility into a retirement home and catch Alzheimer's. We're nowhere near saying anything close to that. That's mm-hmm. not what this is about. Uh, if you spend time with uh, a loved one who has Alzheimer's... Well, it's also not something that you exhale. You don't, and also, the evidence, it's not, it's, it's not clear what happened. Yeah, and that's, that's the viewpoint from the CDC of Germany. That would be uh, the takeaway. Yeah. Uh, officially. So if you heard that headline, it's, it's a stunning one. And it's possible that it will be verified completely in the future and that it'll continue to, to shape and change our understanding of, of mm-hmm. all neurodegenerative diseases. At this point, take a deep breath. You're fine. It's not going to happen to you. Okay. And uh, yeah, we're not even sure if that's the case yet. All right, Connor, thanks. And if anyone wants to weigh in on this, it's a big one. Let us know at SUDW.com. We are joined by Johan Hermstruver. Yes, thanks for having me. Hey, Johan. Johan, you're here to talk about AI and a fascinating aspect of it I'd never considered before. But before we do that, you are associated with the Max Planck Institute for Research on Collective Goods. And that name, there's an underground station here close by. And I've been reading it for years, and I've never understood what that means, research on collective goods. What do you, what do, you do? What are you a, an expert in? Um, so it's an excellent question. And, and you know, there, there is this running gag by one of uh, our former directors, Martin Helwig, who said that the, the main reason for having an institute called Institute for Research on Collective Goods is that we don't exactly know what it is. 
And that's exactly why we need that institute. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it, or maybe more importantly, what did you study? Uh, what we do on a more serious note is mostly experimental and empirical research, uh, research in behavioral economics, uh, and, and research on human behavior. Um, I personally have been working in the behavioral law and economics department. I've done a lot of experimental studies on how people um, decide in specific situations, analyzing what the impact of the law on human decision-making is. And you focus on artificial intelligence, or that's one of the things that you look into. Yes, exactly. So I've been um, involved uh, or I've been doing research on um, artificial intelligence uh, and the law for quite some time now. I've mostly been exploring these issues um, using experimental and empirical methods. So how AI can be used by law enforcement or what exactly? Yes, exactly. So, so that's part of my research. Uh, so um, part of my research has been to explore how law enforcement can use AI, but I'm also particularly interested in the perception uh, of AI and, and the way that we can design processes in which an AI interacts with a legal decision maker. So it's how we think about it. Whether or not we can tolerate having decisions, certain decisions made for us by artificial intelligence. Exactly. So the, the question in my research is not really how to design mm. uh, the machine learning algorithms and the AI, but it's more about the perceptions and the evaluations and assessments that those affected by the AI have vis-a-vis -vis that AI. What do we think about it? I mean, this is a very tough question, actually. Um, so what we know, uh, this is part of the, uh, the findings of a study we've, uh, we've done, is that there is a different perception in terms of procedural fairness between human decision makers and an AI and one very prominent finding from, from a study we did is uh, there is a human AI fairness gap, which basically means that uh, in a situation where you have a decision maker and the decision maker is a human and you compare that same decision situation to a situation where the decision is made by a robot, we tend to perceive the human decision maker as fairer than the robot. <laughs> which is... Almost funny because we all know we humans are so fallible and make so many errors, and the, and yet it's the robot. And robots are really good at what they do, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just objective yeah. and neutral. Yeah. Uh, let's get into the scenarios that you presented um, the participants in your in, in your studies or in your research with. What were they considering as a possibility that that AI would decide for them? So uh, we have three um, scenarios. One is a predictive policing scenario. So basically a situation where the police um, needs to predict some kind of risk in order to effectively deploy their police forces. Then we have a school admission scenario. Uh, the idea is that we have an AI predicting the likelihood of student success at schools uh, and that AI will then, based on that prediction, decide on whether student should be admitted or not. So a poli the police force deciding where is crime going to happen, and then an and then AI telling me, Connor, you can go to this university or you can't because yes. you're not going to be successful. Exactly. There. Based on a prediction 
of, of your success chances at that specific institution. And what was number three? Uh, number three is a refugee placement scenario. And here the idea is that we can use some kind of AI or uh, um, matching algorithm that will help us efficiently place refugees across mm -hmm. the country. Which one do we want to discuss here? Uh, all of them. Police. Oh. Let's start with. Let's just go police. in the order. Okay. Poli right, the poli uh, we have human police officers who can decide whether or not crime is going to happen in a certain place, and we have AI, which is sifting through who knows what kind of data. W uh, what do people react better to? What do participants uh, participants in your studies like more? So, in that specific scenario, people tend to prefer the human decision maker. Although I have to say that there is a seems to be a general aversion against human decision-making as well in the predictive policing scenario. And there could be a lot of different reasons. So we ran this specific study in the U.S. So it could be that due to recent, to the George Floyd shooting, for example, and, and um, massive police violence in the U.S., uh, the difference in perceived fairness between the human police officer and an AI police officer is not as pronounced as it is in other scenarios. Um, so in addition to having a human decision maker and an AI decision maker, we also have hybrid um, decision processes. So where the AI helps the police officer, but the police officer makes a decision or where the police officer has some exactly. input and the AI ultimately makes it. Exactly. Basically, there is a human decision maker interacting with an AI that is used to predict some kind of, of crime risk. Uh, but the human always remains in the loop, meaning that the human officer will always make um, her own assessment and check whether the assessment made by the prediction made by the AI is plausible or not. That is a scenario that people tend to prefer in terms of fairness. So they consider this as being the fairest decision-making process. So I guess my question, I don't want to jump the gun here, uh, but is, is this extractable to the other two scenarios? My suspicion is it would be that I, university admissions, if I have the option of having a human uh, take a look at my, uh, my, my scores, my standardized test scores, and my grades and my extracurricular activities, all that stuff. If it could be just a human or just an AI or mostly human with some AI support or mostly AI with some human support that I'm going to – are we always going to take the one where it's mostly human but with some, some AI support? Yes, that's actually an interesting finding of, of our study. Across the different scenarios, what we see is that perceived fairness for – the hybrid decision-making procedure with a high degree of human involvement is always considered the fairest. I guess one question I have, I'm working it out as I talk into this microphone because I know there are some fast food drive throughs that are, are using AI. So you go through and you're not talking to a human anymore. You're talking to artificial intelligence. It's transcribing and placing your order. And so I, at first I thought that's a counterexample. I'm allowing it, right? I'm engaging with it. I have no problem at all. But it's not. I'm, that, it's not making a decision for me. It's not looking at the, the kind of car I'm driving, the way my hair is cut, and saying, you know what? You, it hears you say medium fry and, yeah. and burgers without pickles, right? It doesn't tell me you're getting chicken nuggets or something like that. And so it leads me to wonder, are we, based on what you've seen, I'm not talking about your study, but your research, are we ever okay with our decisions being made for us. And, and maybe it's bigger than AI. Maybe we don't even want other people making decisions for us. I don't know. 
That's a, that's a tricky question. Actually, there there are studies showing that people sometimes have a preference for delegating decisions, especially very complex deci- decisions. Or uh, imagine um, you want to avoid the blame yeah. of you know some bad bad decision. So these are typical contexts or uh, situations in which human beings tend ah. to prefer delegating. Uh, okay, so, a decision. It, so if I'm going through the drive-thru and I'm supposed to pick out eight meals for eight friends and I don't know what they want, then I want AI to figure that out for me because then it's not my fault. It could be. <laughs> okay. could be. <laughs> okay. Well, in, in the end, we just want the de- decisions to work out for us. Like if an AI had decided, yeah, you get into college, Gabe, then I would have been like, great. I love AI. I love AI. <laughs> but, if, <laughs> but if I get rejected and it's because of AI, then I'm going to be probably way more angry than if there was a, a human being behind that decision, I guess. Because I would feel that the, the cards are stacked against me in such a way that I'll never be able to, to make it through this world. Even computers hate me. Hate me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just I'm kind of I'm speaking from my individual perspective yeah. right now, but maybe yeah. that could factor into it. I guess the bottom line of our little discussion here is that we're at the very beginning of a scientific journey, and we're not even close to the to the peak. Um, so there, all of these questions that you you mention are in the end, or most of these are not just normative questions. Not it's not just about value assessments. It's also about um, these are also empirical questions. So we don't a- actually know. Empirically, how people, you know, tend to perceive certain kinds of of AI-based decisions. Yuan, thank you for coming in and raising, in the best way, I think, more questions than you've even answered with your very, very interesting study. Yeah, still uh, maybe a, a, a warning to the world that we don't, we don't even know what people think about this stuff yet. We haven't even begun collecting the data on these collective goods. Yeah, thank you, Yuan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of this week's show. And first, of all, first of all, thank you to everyone for for making it this far with us. Yeah, not only this thirty minutes, but what? How long have we been doing this now? A couple oh, of years the, in the in the biggest sense, three, three years. Yeah, that last four chat, years. That last chat we just had there. A lot of times we like to end with an, a question or a practical tip for you, based on the science we've been talking about. I don't have one there. I don't even know what the question is. It's all so complicated and convoluted. Yeah, AI and <laughs> and decision making and administration and public spaces, public goods. Yeah, AI in general. And we kind of got ourselves embroiled in one of those questions personally, Science Unscripted, um, when we posted one of our videos to YouTube and we got an excellent and kind of painful comment from a guy named Sam. Sam is a graphic artist. And it was it was specific reference to a, the way we created a picture. A thumbnail. A thumbnail picture for the YouTube video. I used AI software to create an image of of a kid basically we needed a symbolic image of a kid looking skyward and sam writes this is fascinating and i love the radio show but sad to see you using unethically trained and deployed because all of it currently is 
AI image generation here for your thumbnails. Please don't do that. The current generation of AI was trained on datasets that were scrapped and utilized without the consent of the artists or the IP holders under a frankly questionable deployment of nonprofit arms of companies and organizations and the misappropriation of fair use laws. By using them and paying to use them, and we do that here. DW, yeah. Yeah. You're encouraging this unethical conduct and helping to bankroll their court cases against the lawsuits they are facing in court. I was going to share this episode on social media, but as soon as I saw the AI thumbnail, I decided not to. And I'll find some other reporting of this news to share instead. Please don't contribute to normalizing it. Your wife is an an artist, right? A professional artist. So you would know where Sam's coming from here, right? I do. And we've had these discussions. And um, I guess I'm on both sides. I see exactly where you're coming from, Sam. You are basically correct. And yet, when I'm here at work... It's the easiest way to get exactly the imagery I'm looking for. And that's not ethical behavior. It's just what I did. Within seconds, you've got a perfect picture. Yeah. And so that's, I guess, the question. I would, the the specific question, should we stop using AI imagery? Should we stop using AI-generated text, which we don't use for the show? Mm. Should we avoid it? Because it's all scrapped from other people's hard work. That's a real question I have for you, our listeners. Let us know, su at dw.com or... DW Podcasts on YouTube. Leave a comment there. Science Unscripted. DW, made for minds.